Brain Injury Today is sponsored by the Washington State Traumatic Brain Injury Council and produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Because as brain injury survivors, we see so many different types of providers. People need to understand that telehealth is an option and can be an option, and they need to try to ask for that. Welcome to another episode of Brain Injury Today, your connection to the brain injury community. I'm your host, Deborah Crawley, Executive Director of the Brain Injury Alliance of Washington. Today, I'm excited to speak with Laura Jantos. Laura is a two-time brain injury survivor who has also worked at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And she's going to be talking with us about telemedicine, telehealth, and understanding how we as individuals or we as caregivers, we as family members can really be the best advocate we can as we go through these journeys with brain injury. Laura, welcome to Brain Injury Today. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think I'm going to learn a lot today, as will our audience, um, about this whole new world that has kind of blown up in, in, the, in the wake of COVID. The push towards telehealth and telemedicine is huge. Um, but before we get into that, we want our listeners to know a little more about your own journey. And I know that you've suffered two traumatic brain injuries, one back in 2012 and another in 2018. So give us a little, you know, background on, on your life, what led you here to be part of the Brain Injury Today podcast in our community. Sure. Thank you. So I got started actually in healthcare technology right out of college. I really thought it was cool to work in that intersection of technology and medicine and, and making healthcare better through the use of electronic health records, essentially. And, I, and over the years, I um, became a partner in a consulting firm here based in Seattle. And I worked with hospitals and health systems all over the country to implement better tools to help patients and to help providers and to connect organizations and people. Um, a lot of my work was around chronic disease management, and I work with a lot of large health systems. And then in 2012, um, I was up at Whistler with my family and I had a snowboarding accident and didn't quite realize what had happened. Just thought I had a migraine and, you know, went back to shake it off. And five days later realized that, you know, in the morning when I was trying to get up and go into calls and do work, I just was lagging, you know, mm -hmm. felt swimmy headed and weird and, and awkward. Um, went back mm -hmm. to Seattle, was diagnosed with subdural hematomas about a month later. Um, went through a recovery process and, you know, about after about three months thought I could start working again, but, uh, you know, consulting is a, a really long days and very exciting work, but flying and being in a lot of meetings and taking a lot of notes. And mm -hmm. I realized I just couldn't keep up with all of it. So unfortunately I had to retire due to disability at the end of 2012. And I focused all of my effort on recovery and I got, um, a fabulous team. Actually, I connected to uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, um, was married to a, a woman who is a fantastic neuropsychologist who's on the board of the Brain Injury Alliance of Washington. And she's the person who actually I saw in the middle of the summer when I was in the middle of this said, hey, you have a traumatic brain injury and I can help you. So she got me a fantastic team. Um, and, and, you know, I, I 
rehabilitated and got to a point of, I guess, adjustment and did a lot of community volunteering. And I got to the point in 2018 where, um, you know, the, the core issue that I have is, is focus and concentration. So mm-hmm. I can concentrate deeply for about 45 minutes twice a day. Mm-hmm. And I've never really been able to get past that. I can do more things in that time, but I do sort of time out. But I was getting more effective over time building little tools. And I thought, well, maybe I could pivot back from community volunteering into something healthcare related. And I was sitting at a stoplight in Factoria and someone T-boned my car. Wow. So went through everything again. And, and in healthcare, we talk a lot about um, social determinants of health, that people, you know, there's sort of inequities in healthcare. And, and from a social determinants of health perspective, I have everything in my favor. I have a stable home environment. I have a, you know, a, a family that cares about me that has medical and legal experience. And, and I've been through this before. So I thought, you know, okay, this is a bummer, but I should be able to get through it pretty effectively. But what I found was that I had to start at square one. I had to find all new providers because my team had essentially retired. And, um, and it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. It took a really long time. It was 125 visits in the course of the first year. New symptoms, different providers, different processes, creating a lot of referrals, um, you know, legal stuff involved because it was a car accident, a lot of claims that had to be dealt with. And so it gave me the time to really reflect. And in a speech therapy exercise, I um, started pulling together a proposal to my old professional society saying, hey, here's what it really takes a patient, the effort a patient has to put in using this technology to get better because there's a lot of deficiency. Right. So um, that kind of brings us to COVID times. I was going to present that talk in March and then COVID happened. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so then I was thinking, well, now what? And actually I've been able to pivot and do some advocacy. Um, COVID is actually an interesting time period. And I, and I think, you know, if some silver lining comes out of this, hopefully it can be a big change in healthcare technology. Yeah. And and the biggest push I think is in, in telehealth and telemedicine. Yeah. So let's, so a lot of interesting things you just said there, you had been collecting the data that we hear about from so many individuals we support about, oh my God, how much it took during those first two years to just make it through the the number of appointments, the differentiation of appointments, finding the providers. And we'll get to that, but I think it's so cool because you actually quantitatively kept track of all that, which I'm thankful that you made that happen because it's anecdotal when they hear it from all the thousands of survivors that probably tell them the same thing. And it takes it to just a very different level when it's presented peer-to-peer. You were a professional peer presenting that information. So I'm going to thank you for that because it's those little one-offs that I think really help move us forward. It's an important piece of um, educating the providers and everyone involved in the medical system regarding brain injury. But as we move forward, I know we're going to be talking about telemedicine and telehealth. And I would say I kind of interchange those. So give us a little differentiation between what is telemedicine, what is telehealth? Sure. So telemedicine has a pretty narrow definition. Mm. Telemedicine is um, interacting with a physician in a different location through typically a video visit. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that's been in the industry for a really long time. It was highly regulated. 
the idea was that people, especially in rural areas, don't have great access to um, the internet. They can't get in to see specialists. Um, they don't have a lot of physicians close at hand. So people would actually have to travel to a location Absolutely. beyond specific HIPAA secure equipment and communicate with the provider. And then that would be a billable encounter mm -hmm. with that doctor. Telehealth is a broader term. Telehealth is if you take that concept and you expand it to a whole bunch of other things like home monitoring equipment or home visits or being able to do a visit over the phone rather than in this super secure video environment or remote ICU monitoring, um, remote prescription services, which we're seeing ads for on the TV all the time, even email visits um, or or these chat bots, right? You go on the internet and you ask a question and it seems like a person, but it's really like a little artificial intelligence chat bot kind of talking back and forth to you. That's telehealth. It's sort of a, a much broader concept. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I get what you're saying. Yes. And I think the bots are horrible. I hate bots. Any bot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just warn you that sometimes the bot is actually a real person. So um, I've been speaking to a lot of to, physician don't. friends. <laughs> Don't yell at the bot. Right? <laughs> yeah. I should just ask. Um, cool. Great. Thank you. So um, part of what your background and expertise is in too is understanding kind of all these rules and regulations. So BIAWA can be an advocate and can push and can support individuals in trying to seek out any method of connecting with quality providers. But yeah, up until COVID, it was super hit or miss at best. Uh, but what's kind of changed because of COVID that's allowed them to utilize these services to a broader extent? So if you think back to what was happening in March and how frightened everybody was to have a medical appointment and how overwhelmed the health systems were mm -hmm. with COVID patients. You know, I know my therapy was completely stopped. All of my encounters were, I got a phone call saying, we're just not bringing anybody in. Right. And the government, um, there's something called a, a public health emergency, a PHE. So they, they declared a public health emergency, which is COVID and um, put some regulations forward that really relax and open up how telehealth can be provided. So basically all, a lot of restrictions have been pulled off. Yeah. But the things that were expanded to, I think are important to think about in terms of brain injury. So before you could do behavioral health and I'll tell you, you know, I have a, I was going to behavioral health visits myself uh -huh. to deal with the PTSD of the accident. And my therapist would say, you know, you can do this remotely if you, if you can't drive. You know, one of the things I looked back in my data was that my recovery took, if I, if I look at my 45 minutes twice a day, my recovery basically took over 50% of that cognitively available time, not even chasing down the bills and that stuff, but literally just getting in the car, driving someplace, having the visit and coming back. Right. And that process is so physically exhausting and cognitively exhausting for people that at the end of it, you almost wonder, you know, why was I there? What did, what they did I get? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what was the benefit? So I did use that a couple of times. It was helpful. It wasn't perfect. I've learned mm -hmm. a lot, I think, about how to use it. Um, but behavioral health was one that was, that was available to people 
prior to this public health mm-hmm. emergency, prior to COVID. But now it's expanded to things like speech therapy, speech yeah. language pathology. I mean, there are a whole ton of other areas, um, gait assessment, like a lot of things that are neuro-related because as brain injury survivors, we see so many different types of providers. Right. And so this has really been expanded from like very narrow areas into much broader areas. And, and it keeps expanding and changing as they try to figure out what really is effective and what can be done remotely. That's great. And that's information. I, I, I've heard the same. You know, you were able to drive. So many of our folks are taking public transit. So they weren't, they didn't have access to public transit. They didn't want to get on public transit, right, to get to their medical appointments. So having this available is going to be a game changer, I think. Um, one thing we struggle with in our community is still the barriers, you know, having the right technology themselves, you know, having the computer having the internet. Um, So it's, the more we know about what's available, which you're giving us here, Laura, which is great, the more we know about what we can be working with clients when we're doing resource management or resource line calls to say, hey, you should be able to get this. All right, what are the barriers for you accessing? Sure, And, and I think that's a really important role and so, you know, what I found is that my, one of my therapists called me over the summer when I was off for a walk with my daughter and just wanted to check in. And it was so helpful just oh to God. have that phone call and, yeah. and talk about what I was supposed to be doing because I, I forget, you know, I create all these side systems on my phone. I video her doing the exercise and then I put a reminder on my phone and then I can look at the video because the technology that we have doesn't really encompass recovery in a good way. Right. Um, but having that phone visit was incredibly helpful. And I told her, you know, you can bill for this now. A phone visit is a recognized telehealth visit. <laughs> she loved she, you. <laughs> well, but she said, you know, we, we're not going to do that at this health system. And, oh. and I think, again, what we need to do, what we need to leverage is our advocacy voice to help these health systems understand how important these services are. Because I understand this doesn't have the revenue impact of cancer care or right. orthopedic surgery, but when you look at the total dollar amount of people with acquired brain injury mm-hmm. and the ongoing cost of that and the societal cost of that, it is really significant. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, hopefully, you know, with time, there are two pieces of this stuff. I think people need to understand that telehealth is an option and can be an option and they need to try to ask for that before they go to see a provider if it is possible to have a right. telehealth visit. Right. It's a monetary financial piece and it drives me crazy, but I know it's a reality, but I agree with you. You know, hospitals kind of dismiss brain injury, acquire brain injuries as, oh, kind of this, you know, one and done when it's not. And it's a huge ongoing issue. I can only imagine if we quantified the dollars spent at healthcare systems for brain injury. Um, You mentioned offline and we're going to dialogue this a little more because I loved hearing about this too just for my own personal health and all of us is this new rule on unblocking so can you explain more about that and accessing our own healthcare information sure so um and, and I'll tag back to something that you said too you know health systems hospitals and health systems have gotten really large over the past decade or two decades, right? It, it, we used to have a community doctor and they had a buddy down the street that they could refer you to. But now these health systems are really massive. 
you know, also with the implementation of these big electronic health record systems, they're really expensive, they're really complex, and they're massive investments. And so that does kind of tie people to using the health system where their records are, right? right? It's really hard. You know, my accident was in Canada, and then I came back down and saw my doctor at Minor and James, and then I got referred to somebody at UW. And, you know, it's really hard um, to go through this process where if I go in for the sixth MRI and they ask me what my relevant priors are, I actually go into my phone and on Dropbox, I have a record of all my stuff and then I handwrite it on the form and then I hand it to the radiologist and then I have my CT scan or my MRI. And then later my report comes back that says no relevant priors. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> right. I told so, you if nothing else. Right. So believe me, I'm the patient. I might remember. Right. I, I, I know this stuff is out there. So, so this, uh, it's, 20, it's called the 21st Century Cures Act, and it was finalized back in the spring. Uh-huh. And um, the timeline is shifting, like all things are shifting right now with COVID. Yeah. But basically, it says that patients have a right to have their data and access to that for free, and that health systems are going to have to provide that information. And they're going to have to use standards to do it. It's not completely wide open. There's, right. some, there's some accepted standards to provide this access. But the hope is that you'll be able to, and there are a ton of apps that are out there and being developed now mm-hmm. for people to have access to their own health information. So at least if you, if you can go someplace and take your information with you in the format that you want to have it, and you've got that stuff with you um, in the cloud or in some way that you, that you can get it between health systems. Um, so I think that that has a lot of potential. Now, again, it's not perfect. A lot of the development, again, is going into the big ticket areas like the cancers and the orthos and the, you know, diabetes and and heart, you know, the typical big picture items. So again, I think we need to advocate around making sure that we have um, appropriate apps that can help people with brain injury. One of the biggest issues that I have found in my recovery, even the second time around, was Mm -hmm. just figuring out who's out there that can help me, mm-hmm. right? Just searching mm-hmm. for a neurologist isn't mm-hmm. necessarily the right thing. And there are different types of providers that might treat brain injury. Absolutely. So having better guidance is, is very important. Um, and then being able to get my records to those folks so they can mm-hmm. preview that and then hopefully getting in to see them in a timely manner. And so I'm kind of hoping that, that what the new world is starting to look like between telehealth and unblocking is mm-hmm. an environment where maybe we can have faster virtual consults to figure out where we need to go and who we need to be seen by and not have to spend so much time kind of working the system to make sure we get the visit with the right person at the right time. Right. right. It is our number one call to our resource line, finding providers. And we do have, and I will put in a plug right now as I will at the end, yeah. anyone out there listening and struggling and wanting information, uh, BIAWA has probably the best database in the country for the state of Washington, obviously, is our purview at 877-824-1766. We have three to 4,000 providers who we vet, honestly, on an ongoing basis. It's a huge priority for us, right? So that you can call and we know and we have talked to and we have information on really, I always say everything from your medical professionals to the 
the dog washer who's going to help you wash your dog now because that's not going to be able to be done uh, by you personally after your brain injury for at least a time period. So who's going to, who are those helpful folks? Who gets brain injury? Who's the DVR person who does? Who's the OT? Who's the speech? Who's the vestibular? All of those. They're like needles in a haystack, even in huge metropolitan areas like Seattle, let alone our, our more rural communities. And the other piece that you mentioned was coordination of medical records. It's a catch-22 just from what you said there, Laura, because right now it does work best for most of, most of the individuals. This is not an always situation, but for most to have care coordinated within one system because we want the um, providers to have that full picture of this individual. Now, if there was a way that the individual could have that access so that ultimately they're in charge of their own records. Um, there is a ton of money right now uh, going to healthcare venture capital. And yeah. again, I'm really encouraged. Good. Um, and, and I'm hoping that it can get there. Mm -hmm. um, there's a ton of money going into healthcare in general. There are is money, private equity money going into trying to disrupt stuff like the, the Providences and the UW, the large health systems, um, to try to make more effective models for people. There's just a, a ton of stuff going on. And Apple, Google, Microsoft, everybody is trying to, to try to crack part of this question um, as a person with a health consideration, I want to know that my information is going to be secure and I want to know that I'm going to manage it and that I am going to have control over that. So right. as we watch this market evolve, um, like I mentioned earlier around telehealth, a lot of the HIPAA restrictions have been pulled off to, to try to enable people to have telehealth visits. Mm -hmm. As products are being developed around this information blocking, it's also really important to pay attention to HIPAA and make sure that if you are storing your data in some kind of an app, that it is yeah. HIPAA protected. Yeah. It's hard to be a vigilant consumer. It's a lot of work, right? You know, it's like, ugh, what do I else do I have to manage? Is it another password for God's sake? You know, it's a huge struggle. All of this is a huge struggle. And boy, it's, it's, it's kind of like we should do this every six months because then you can give us an update, right? <laughs> I, I'd be happy to. And I think the biggest thing I can say to people right now, Deborah, is that it's not you because as somebody with a brain injury, if I go through that effort to get myself to that appointment, I've put so much cognitive energy in that when they walk in the room and say, how are you? I'll say, oh, I'm great. How are you? And I'll forget everything, right? So some ability to kind of tee up really symptomatically right. how you're doing what you want to talk about. And then the next piece is that actual visit. But after you go through that visit, I mean, who can remember what was actually done after? Right. So really having a good understanding of what was said, what you need to do, how you can follow up, and then timely reminders and alerts for you as a person going through recovery. Again, like the stuff I have on my phone, right. it'll pop up and say, hey, it's noon, go eat lunch and then do these PT exercises and don't forget to take these meds. Something that's really in tune to who you are. And then the last thing that I'd love to have is sort of more of the forward thinking, like what is the other research coming down that maybe could help me 
Mm-hmm. And then there's the financial piece, you know, transparency into how much is this all going to cost me? And, and I'm hoping, you know, again, I'm really hopeful that, that these pieces will start to come together in a better way in the next mm-hmm. couple of years. Mm-hmm. But I think it is going to take a lot of advo- advocacy on the part of people. Yeah, to try I to think get it, attention. yeah, I think I'm glad we've, we're having the conversation because technology's out there, but if folks aren't accessing it, it's, it's not doing it the good that it needs to be doing. So. Sure. Uh, so I, I prepped some materials um, for something that I did in August mm-hmm. around how to have a telemedicine visit or telehealth well, visit. That sounds perfect, Laura. Thank you. Sure. So um, just to kind of walk through it, think about it, you know, you're taking out that travel part, mm-hmm. but think about it like you are having a regular visit. Um, if you could physically see me right now, you'd see that I'm all geared up with a crazy microphone and a big pair of headphones. And I don't expect that people do that normally, but I will say it's really helpful before you do a telemedicine visit. If you have at least some kind of headphones or earbuds or something attached to your system, make sure because providers are using all sorts of different technology for these visits, uh-huh. Zoom and, and, Go to meeting um, and FaceTime and, and yeah, Facebook message, all sorts of different things, Skype. So make sure you look at what your provider is using in mm-hmm. advance and download that and make sure you have it. It's better to use something that's on a desktop rather than a handheld, like a, like a phone. It's better to have right. something that's in front of you. Um, make sure you're in a part of your house or where you're living, where, um, you're okay with people seeing what's going on in the background. Yep. Make sure you've got your glass of water handy and a notepad and a pen and that you've got your notes about what you want to talk about, because just the technology piece I think is a little daunting and you can get confused Mm -hmm. about, about your visit Mm -hmm. and the communication. And then the other thing that's really important is that if there is somebody who normally comes to the visit with you, they should also be there for the virtual visit. Absolutely. So I think those are all sort of helpful reminders. And then there's an expectation that a, a telehealth visit starts on time, right? Like a meeting, yeah. a Zoom meeting starts at <laughs> on time, but we're still talking about doctor's offices. <laughs> so, That's true. I didn't think of that. I have yeah. not done telehealth myself. So. Right. So make sure that you're set up and ready to go a little bit beforehand and it's okay to get everything set up. And then you might, you know, walk away in the waiting room, right? Look at a book or a magazine for a little bit, kind of have it on, make sure you can hear it. Um, Sometimes there's a two-step process where you have to validate who you are first. Mm, Okay. Um, So they're sure that it's you. So have your insurance card and your ID ready. Mm Sometimes I know one time they tried to call me and I had my phone set so that uh, numbers I don't recognize go straight to my voicemail. Right. And so that phone message right. goes straight to voicemail. So if you, if you know that setting, make sure that your phone is set up so that any call can come in, um, that you can talk to them because they will try to use a different, a different way to maybe validate who you are. Yeah. And then again, that chat box, that chat bot, if you get a chat bot from somebody saying, are you ready? That could be your doctor. So, <laughs> so I realize that it you might not it. just, yeah, it might not be an AI. It might, it might be a real person, but hopefully that'll help you. Um, You've given us so much here. You're just a wealth of information. I mean, I just love that we have a connection to you and uh, your passion for making sure telehealth and telemedicine and new rules are really being translated to this brain brain injury community. 
And thank you for being such a great advocate for brain injury survivors and their family members. It's huge, as we all know, and it affects so many, so many folks in so many ways. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time and I'm happy to answer any questions if, if folks have questions. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Brain Injury Today. If you'd want to get in touch with Laura, you can find her information in the show notes for this episode, along with her tips for having a successful telemedicine visit. If you liked what you heard during this episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to give us a rating and share it with your family and friends. And as always, you can find support by calling 877-824-1766 or by visiting BIAWA.org. Remember, you are not alone. The Brain Injury Alliance of Washington is here to support you. And we'll see you next time on Brain Injury Today.